when I'm um, preparing to speak on a Sunday morning I often try to imagine you in my mind what, 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 what are you thinking about um, uh, as, I, uh, as I prepare what will you be thinking about when I stand up on Sunday what have you been doing this week what's on your mind some of you I know quite well I could probably make a good guess some of you I know a little uh, to be honest a significant number I don't know at all but I do know this actually there will be a thousand things on your mind distracting things trivial things sometimes significant things on your mind just represented here there are myriads of concerns money work pressures relationships health issues exams and on the list goes and uh, to be honest if I asked another question well why are you here then there would probably be as many different answers as there are people in, in the room uh, but today actually to be honest as we've been doing every week as we've looked at Matthew uh, 8 and 9 I want to focus your minds focus your attention focus what's uh, to clear your head because frankly life is complex life is distracting life is confusing sometimes it's hard and we get caught up in the busyness of that life and we, uh, and we lose sight of what our life is really about and Matthew chapters 8 and 9 in a sense is to, is to clear the way to help us to see with clarity Do you, I, you remember I hope that it was written perhaps about 30 years or so a generation or so after the death and resurrection of, of Jesus to Christians who were feeling marginalised one way or another the Jewish Christians marginalised from their own people, the Jews, but Christians in general marginalised as the sort of great juggernaut of the Roman Empire seemed to just roll over them effortlessly. And understandably, people thought, well, what, what is my life about? They, they got distracted by all of those different concerns of life, just as we do because there are so many different things that clamour for our attention aren't there good things often important things they clamour for our attention and frankly when we look at the world you know what, what God is doing in his church seems to be a complete irrelevance and, and Matthew wants to stop us short and say no that's not true he's been saying from the beginning of chapter 8 uh, to the end of chapter 9 one thing effectively Jesus is in control Jesus has absolute authority. Jesus has actually all the authority of God at his disposal. And this uh, section, Matthew 9:35 to, to 38, in a sense completes that, that sketch that Matthew uh, has been portraying. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom healing every disease and sickness. Actually that summary is almost identical to another one way back in Matthew 4 verse 23 at the end of the, 
of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. And those two summaries actually act as bookends. Because, in fact, Matthew chapters 5 to 7 had been, though we haven't looked at it, had been establishing Jesus' authority too. Jesus' authority to teach as a teacher. And then Matthew 8 and 9 that we have been looking at establishes Jesus' authority by his actions. Matthew was saying in Matthew 5 to 7, listen to him. In Matthew 8 and 9, trust him. And now he brings that to, to a conclusion with this little summary sentence in 9 verse 35. So this is a very, very important little moment in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, um, uh, made more important when you, when you, if you remember the, the structure of Matthew 8 and 9 that we have come back to uh, a number of times. Do you remember that there are three sets of three miracle stories? Um, and in between them, there were repeated calls to discipleship. In uh, chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, there was a call to, to complete obedience to Jesus. In chapter 9, verses 9 to 16, there was a call, in fact, to be people of grace and joy and celebration as we uh, um, become followers of Jesus. So, 9:35 to 38 is the third of those calls Okay, so, so it's the climax that he's been that he's been heading to, thirty-five to thirty-eight. He calls, he calls, he calls again. And um, uh, another thing that perhaps it perhaps shows you how it's heading towards a, a climax. Do you remember in those three sets of miracles of three miracles each time they ended in a particular way? The first three three sets of miracles ended by an assurance that Jesus' primary purpose was to forgive. This was to fulfil what was said through the, through, through the prophet. Surely he took up our infirmities and healed our diseases. And that wasn't fundamentally about physical healing, that was just a pointer to a deeper healing, the healing of forgiveness. And then in the second cycle, the, um, uh, the, the, the punchline was all about forgiveness as well. In that case... Um, um, a, a healing of a paralytic was used. Jesus said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I heal this paralytic. Okay? Forgiveness was the punchline of the first set of miracles. Forgiveness was the punchline of the second set of three miracles. But then there's a surprise in the third set of three miracles. It's not forgiveness. A mute man speaks. That's um, in the... Uh, um, uh, verse 32 to 34 of chapter 9. When uh, uh, Jesus um, uh, drove out a demon and the man who had been mute spoke, we learn, in verse 33. So what's Jesus' ministry about? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Enabling people to speak bit of a surprise. But you see, that gets echoed as we will see in just a moment. 
in 935-38. So, we're, we're, we're at the high point here. We're, we're, at the, we're at the climax. We're at the end point that Matthew wants us to, to, to get to. And um, we need to read uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35-38 to 38 in that context. And we're going to do that by, by just looking at a few uh, uh, things about this passage. First of all, we need to see what Jesus feels. It's very obvious, isn't it? Verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Uses language of, 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 of the guts. Sort of um, uh, his, his his, his gut churn for them, you could, you, you, you could say, to um, uh, make it into contemporary language. And in that, you see, Jesus' compassion is like the compassion of God. Remember, Matthew has been telling us again and again, all the authority of Jesus, of, of, sorry, of God, is found in Jesus. And now, he's just hinting, all the compassion of God is found in Jesus. That the compassion of God is, is, a, is a vital, vital principle of, for understanding God in the Old Testament. You know, the Bible doesn't portray a nasty, angry God in the Old Testament and a loving Jesus, uh, compassionate Jesus in the New. It's not like that both in old and new, you find the compassion and the fierce justice of God alongside. But let's look at the, let's, let, let's look at the compassion of God in the Old Testament. Remember when Moses, in Exodus 34, asked to see God's glory, and he couldn't see God's glory properly, but he could hear God proclaim the truth about himself. The Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That is the essence of God's character that Moses learned. Or some of you may remember the, 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 the prophecy of Hosea where, where uh, God te- tells them that he, he must judge them, judge the nation because of their sin. And then there's an extraordinary turning point in Hosea 11 where God resolves finally. He, he cannot, he will not bring his punishment on his people. He says this, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over to Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. And all the Old Testament's hopes for the future rest on God once again pouring out his compassion onto this world. Listen to Isaiah 63 verse 15. Look down from heavens and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your might, your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us, says Isaiah. God is compassionate. God is not going to bring judgment. 
Where? When's it going to happen? Where is it? This compassion. Here it is. that is really, really difficult for our hearts to believe. The New Testament says it's, it's actually our growth as believers, our joy is fundamentally defined by how deeply we believe that. And I know that hearts here will be saying, I, I can't believe that. I can't believe that Jesus, is, Jesus has a burning compassion for me. I may, may be a believer even, but, but frankly, I just find it impossible to believe. But what I want to say to you is this. One of the major, major things that the Bible says to us is that life often doesn't look like that, like God is compassionate. But He is. Perhaps when we read the story of Joseph, you, you would be forgiven for thinking God doesn't love Joseph. Allows the brothers to, to um, um, beat him up, nearly kill him, throw him into slavery. When he's in slavery, he ends up in prison. God doesn't love Joseph. But over years, it becomes clear what God is doing. And Joseph comes to the point where he can say, God intended all this for good, my good and your good, his brothers. God always loved him. Absolutely, you can't forgive, jo- you, you, you can forgive Job for thinking God doesn't love me. As, he, as Job endures horror after horror after horror. That's not true. We know behind the scenes God's absolutely committed to Job. And finally Job sees God and is satisfied. Frankly, even the story of Jesus. As you watch it unfolding, as you watch the the opposition to him rising, as you watch him dying on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forgiven me? You think, well, that's, a com- that's completely the opposite of what God said at the beginning. This is my son, my beloved one. But God loves him. So do you think God doesn't love you? think Jesus doesn't have compassion on you? Do you 
Bible. The Bible says, if you are a believer here, if you're a Christian, that though bad things come and difficult things come, if you are a believer here, God is, God is somehow overseeing those, not removing totally the badness, but overseeing them in such a way that in the long run he will do you good. In such a way that in the long run you will not be disappointed, you will be satisfied. The saints in heaven say, surely he has done all things well. We must get that in mind. He has compassion. He has compassion on you. But yeah, the other thing we forget. First thing we forget, we think he can't have compassion on me, he doesn't love me. But they're more germane to this passage in a sense. We forget he loves them. It was the crowds that he looked on actually who became the focus of his compassion. And he wants us to feel that too. Every, every binge drinker on a Saturday night and every self-satisfied professional sleeping in their beds is loved by Jesus with Compassion. Every prostitute on the Cowley Road and every wealthy homeowner on Divinity Road is loved by Jesus. Every, every wailing child in Littlemore and every happy-go-lucky teenager in Iffy Fields is loved by Jesus. Every schoolgirl and boy in Magdalen College School and Cheney and Cherwell and Piers and Oxford Community School and even St Gregory's is loved by Jesus. Yeah? Every elderly person in Marston and Botley and Kennington and so on is loved by Jesus. Every student at Oxford University and at Oxford Brooks and every homeless person sleeping under a bridge or in a shelter is loved by Jesus. High and low, they are loved by Jesus. He has compassion on them. And it is tightly bound up with us believing that that he could love us. We believe that he could love them. Matthew, as he brings us then towards the conclusion of this sort of magisterial display of Jesus' authority, he says, and where that is directed how that is directed, how that is guided, that authority, is by his compassion. He loves. And then, Matthew describes just what Jesus sees. He sees the true situation of the people there. He saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed, pushed around, helpless, weak, um, um, like sheep without a shepherd. It's a, it's a common Old Testament uh, metaphor. 
and um, um, we need to remember what, 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 what those um, pastoral societies, how their sheep were kept. Their, their sheep needed a shepherd um, to lead them to pasture. They needed a, needed a shepherd to, to, to keep them together in a group. They needed a shepherd supremely to keep them from danger. And these people are grazing where there is no grass. They are wandering, wandering who knows where and they are in danger. They are like sheep without a shepherd. As one commentator puts it, the language pictures a predator mangling the sheep, harassing them, helpless, mangling the sheep and throwing them to the ground. Now sometimes, frankly, in our world, it's absolutely obvious that someone is harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. You know, um, all of us have, have, have met people like that. But I, but I want to say to you, that's not always obvious. Jesus is not, Jesus is seeing below the surface in this crowd to the true reality in their lives. When we look at the, the individuals who, who uh, talk to Jesus out of the crowd, we find they're an extraordinary mixture and most of them not particularly looking as though they are harassed and helpless. But that's what Jesus sees. Actually, I think we do see that even amongst the people who aren't are obviously harassed. It's interesting, isn't it, that, 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 that high-powered go-getters in this life are described as driven. All, all, all the external, immediate narrative is about them being in control and gaining power and, and being sovereign over their lives. Well, why do we call them driven? Is it perhaps because underneath that there is a there is a there is a drive there, something driving them as a personality that they're not entirely in control of, and it takes them sometimes where they don't want to go. Or another example in our society which just, just, just highlights how actually people sense that they're not entirely in, in control is how often certain drives, particularly sex drive to be honest, are just acknowledged as being stronger than us. How, how, how could I possibly avoid falling in love with so and so? How could a single person possibly avoid... Uh, sex before marriage. That's just an impossible hope, people say. What an what a, what a interesting view of humanity. Human beings who at one level strut high and confident as if they are completely the master of their fate and yet often who acknowledge they are victims of drives they cannot control. And of course, 
the world is full of acknowledgement that those drives and the lives that come from those drives do not bring contentment so often. The world offers much and delivers much, much less. 150 years ago, Henry Theroux wrote, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed, even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them. Well, recently a chap called Neil Postman wrote a, a, a book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death and, and, and it's common to, to acknowledge that, that amusements have, a, have, a, have a acquired an enormous prominence in our society. But Theroux was saying it's not play, it's not a it's not, it's not an outworking of a sort of inner joy that enables us to delight in games or amusements of whatever kind. It is rather a sort of sticking plaster over an inner sense of despair, the amusements that so many of us go for. When, when you start to take the lid off, to, to pull off the outer skins a little bit, to look into our lives we start to see what Jesus is. Human beings are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We need a shepherd. We will never be, in one sense, our own masters. All that we have the power to do is to choose what master we follow. Is it those hidden motivations and drives that lead us into all sorts of unfortunate places or is it actually the source of all compassion himself, the Lord who is our shepherd? Jesus saw them. He saw the people that were around him. He saw what was going on in their lives and he also saw um, the potential for what could happen. That's in verse 37. Sorry, He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. In other words, he looked at these people in their dire state and he saw that they could, there could be vast numbers of people who would find the joy and contentment of living under him as their shepherd. Can you see that in this world? Let me just try and open your eyes just a little bit. You know, a, a dozen years ago, we as a little church started holiday clubs. Uh, there was a general feeling they weren't sure that we had the resources to do it. I remember the conversations. Um, uh, people felt overwhelmed by the task of having holiday clubs. But we started them and they got going. 
as the children who came to that holiday club matured, they got to secondary school age and we were able at that point as a church to appoint Richard Brewster initially just as a, uh, as a youth worker. Some of you will remember that. And he started youth clubs. As those youth clubs grew on, starting with just 11 and 12 year olds, the cohort that had started as little five-year-olds, the holiday club that we could barely find the resources to run, the cohort that were five got to 18 and we saw seven baptisms. Since then actually another one of that group has uh, given his life to the Lord at university, started announcing it on Facebook. We were tiny, we're still tiny, frankly. With the, the, the proportion of people in this city that we actually had the opportunity to have any contact with was minuscule and we saw seven, eight conversions as a result of it. What might the Lord do now in the next ten dozen years? Open your eyes, says Jesus. When I first came here I realised immediately that there was a significant proportion of Muslims in East Oxford and I started praying about and, and considering um, uh, what, what might happen, what we might do to reach out to Muslims in East Oxford. When I investigated it, frankly, there were about two or three Muslim converts in the whole of Oxford as far as I could, uh, uh, as far as I could find out. Today, there's an Iranian fellowship, just an Iranian fellowship of convert, Muslim converts that numbers 20 or so and two more due to be baptised in a very short time. Tim Green has an annual uh, uh, meal in his house of all the uh, Muslim background believers in Oxford. He's not sure he's going to be able to fit them all in his house now. Open your eyes, what the Lord's doing. We see people passing through the church. It's very frustrating for those who are here um, long term sometimes because just when people are just really settled in and doing really well, they're off. But each of you here who've been for a while, here for a while will have a little, a little network of a small subset of the people who have been here and who are now serving the Lord elsewhere. And let me tell you that the, the, the little subset that I know are being amazingly fruitful from a little church. I think I could probably name 50 countries that people have returned to who would say that a little part, not, not the whole, but a part of their formative experience and their growth as believers was amongst us here and they are serving the Lord elsewhere. I heard a story this week of a chap who devoted himself to illegal um, Mexican immigrants in the southern uh, United States and uh, he would see these people for a number of weeks, he'd give them um, um, uh, Bible studies and so on, numbers of them were converted but they always disappeared, it was very frustrating, it seemed to be a non-ministry until actually he went down to um, Mexico and someone said oh you're so and so they said so you're the head of the, that network of churches there is here he said what? 
Oh yeah, they've been coming back over the border for the last uh, uh, dozen, fifteen years and planting churches all over the place in our area. Your name is revered. Open your eyes. What might the Lord do with us over the next two, five, ten, fifteen years? What might he do? Well, please, Lord, if it's, if it's just as good as the last dozen years, that'll be great. But who knows what greater things he could do? The harvest is plentiful, he says. I see what's going on in those people's lives. I see the harvest. But he knows the challenge too. But the workers are few. He says at the end of verse 37. Oh yeah, he knows. Most people, you see, don't have that vision. They, they, they have lost sight of the compassion of Jesus. They have lost sight of what Jesus is really doing in this world. Helping to liberate harassed and helpless people. Bringing in his harvest. And they frankly just devote themselves, their, their, their lives to other things. Now our vision as a church is that every single person here should be a worker for Jesus Christ. That is the calling of God's people and that is the calling that we, we, we uh, lay on you as leaders and lay on ourselves as a church. You may, um, I hope the vast majority of us here will do something that earns you a regular wage. But every bit of that life spent doing that is to bring glory to Jesus. Your focus, you see, the central thing. Yes, your money is important. Yes, doing, doing those things that you do are important. Yes, all of those things are important. But the central focus for a believer is to let my life display the glory of Jesus. That's why we say our, our vision statement is to delight in God and display his glory. And I pray and I hope that some of you, some of you, may think I need to actually devote my, uh, my life full time to spreading this gospel. Perhaps locally, perhaps nationally, Perhaps globally. We have people here who are already doing that. That is a dignified and glorious thing. It is not the only way to glorify Jesus with your own life, but it is one of the ways to glorify Jesus with your, with your whole life. Is he calling you to do that? That's what Jesus says. He sees the reality of people's lives. He sees the challenge. Uh, he sees the opportunity. There is a great harvest there and he sees the great challenge. The workers are few. Let every single one of us here resolve that we will be one of those workers even if we are few. And then what does he do? Well, of course, um, 
because I'm that sort of preacher um, with that sort of church, we think, yeah, he's gonna, Jesus is going to send us out. And I want you to see he doesn't yet. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And it is clear in Matthew 10 that he expects them to be the answer to their own prayer, in part, but he does not send them out yet. He calls them to pray. Because, you see, activism on its own will be useless. We need hearts that are changed, that are engaging with God. We need a God who will guide us, who will send us, who will direct us, who will empower us, who will encourage us when we fail, who will keep us going through long and hard days, weeks, years who will reassure us of his love, who will strengthen us when we face opposition, who will give us joy that he is supernatural, who will give us a bright hope of our eternal destiny, who will make us useful to him. Ask the Lord, says Jesus. Now we've not got a bad prayer culture in our church, but it could be better. How many are there going to be at this season? We'll be thinking not least about where the Lord may be leading us in the future. Thinking about stop. Does your home group, do you belong to a home group? And those who do, does it focus on prayer? Are your, is your prayer life focused on all the details? Or do all those details get caught up into the one burning vision? I want to know Jesus and serve him. I want to see Jesus glorified in his word. Ask the Lord before going for the Lord. And so Matthew completes his portrayal of the authority of Jesus. He who holds all the authority of God in his hands pours out his compassion, he alerts his disciples to what's really going on in this world and calls us to pray. He's going to step aside in Matthew 10. And he's going to push his disciples out. A first sign of the next stage when he gives authority to the 